Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. This week, I am trying something new. Instead of an interview, I have a recording of a lecture delivered at the 2020 ASSA meetings in San Diego. At that conference, the Association of Christian Economists sponsored two sessions, and the one I will highlight was a series of talks on Adam Smith and religion. The session was co-sponsored by the History of Economic Society. In this episode, I will share the lecture by Paul Oslington about Adam Smith's writing on the economics of religion. In a future episode, I will post a lecture by Ed Knoll from the same session about the influences of the scholastics on Smith's thinking. Oslington argues that while Smith did not formulate a comprehensive theory of the economics of religion, that if you gather his writing about the state church, about religious competition, clergy pay, and related topics, a surprisingly sophisticated account emerges. For those of you who are interested in Adam Smith's thinking, or those who are interested in the economics of religion, this short talk will be intriguing. The lecture comes out of a chapter that was written for the Routledge Handbook of Economic Theology, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Paul Oslington is a longtime member of the Association of Christian Economists. He's a member of the editorial board for Faith and Economics, and he's an important name for those working at the intersection of economics and theology. He's currently Dean of the Business and Professor of Economics at Alpha Crucius College in Sydney, Australia. Before we get to the lecture, however, a couple of notes. First, I'm entering a period in which I will post new episodes somewhat less frequently over the holiday, and then things will pick up a bit again in the spring, perhaps twice a month schedule instead of the weekly episode schedule that I've been able to keep up for a few months on sabbatical. If you have any comments in the meantime about one of our episodes or a suggestion for a future episode, send me an email at podcast at christianeconomists.org. The other note is that the audio quality in this episode is pretty good, all things considered, but not quite as good as we're used to, because it was recorded in a big room, jammed with eagerly listening economists. Okay, so what I'm about in this um, paper, uh, it's a session on new thinking about Adam Smith. And as Ed mentioned, a lot of the the new thinking about Adam Smith in recent years has been uh, taking his Scottish Enlightenment context much more seriously, and in particular, the the religious context of Smith and other Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. What I want to do here is to to rethink Smith's um, chapters in The Wealth of Nations on religious markets. I want to rethink those chapters with the theological context of Smith's work in the background. Some of the some of the previous discussion about church establishment, which I don't think has made it into the literature very well, but particularly to rethink those passages in the Wealth of Nations about religious markets uh, with the theological background in there. Now, I'm not the the first person to to write about um, Smith's account of religious markets in the Wealth of Nations. I guess the the modern discussions of it begin with a paper by Nathan Rosenberg back in the the 60s uh, where where he talks about some of the the institutional aspects of the wealth of nations. Uh, That's education is one of those and um, religious education uh, is specifically the bit that that I'm talking about in this paper. I guess the 
the, the discussion really got going though with a paper in the, um, the late 80s by Gary Anderson. Now that's a, a paper that historians of economics read and cringe a little bit. Um, it's one of those papers that, that's a great read but plays pretty uh, fast and loose with the, the Smith texts and pretty selective about the, the context. He makes two um, fairly uh, grand claims. The first one that Smith, uh, that in the discussion of religion, that Smith comes closest to free market anarchism uh, than any other uh, topic he discusses in The Wealth of Nations. And secondly, and this is a, a big claim uh, for those, I notice a few people from ASRAC in the room, um, and people who work on the economics of religion, and uh, Anderson's claim in that article is that um, Smith believes that um, competition generates optimal religious institutions, whatever optimal religious institutions are, um, but competition delivers them. And so, unsurprisingly, that article uh, generated, that article was in the JPE, most of the discussion, as, as was Rosenberg's article, most of the discussion since then has been in history of political economy. And um, he managed to get a few historians of economics quite um, worked up, um, particularly um, Leathers and Rains, who wrote a couple of much more measured um, articles about these um, sections of the, the Wealth of Nations, much more um, showing also, um, for instance, that Smith um, required you no know, state involvement to maintain the institutional structures around religion and various other things. And there's been a couple more additions to that debate. Um, Eklund and Hebert, uh, who are good historians of economics, wrote, I think, a particularly weak article recently in Hope about those chapters to which Leathers and Rains wrote a, another stirring response. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not here to talk to review the literature on these passages, but I'm certainly not the first person you know, to be picking up those chapters of Smith. But what I want to do is look at the, um, the way reading the religious background into those passages makes a difference to our understanding of them. So I guess I should say something briefly about my understanding of the religious context of, of Smith's writings. Um, I've, if you want to follow any of this up in greater detail, um, I've, the 2018 book um, that I did for Routledge, um, Political Economy is Natural Theology, Smith, Malthus and Their Followers, uh, is, I guess, my take on the religious theological background of Adam Smith's work and the religious background of you know, some other significant 18th and early 19th century economists. But basically, I think the, the important, the, the key, um, as, the key um, theological traditions which feed into Smith's work are the British tradition of scientific natural theology. Um, so Smith, Newton was Smith's um, scientific methodological hero, and you know, that um, natural th that natural theological scientific tradition you know, is is a very important part of the the background for, for Smith's thinking. And the other one, which is, there's been a little bit of discussion of that in the literature, but the other important one, which I don't think there's been nearly as much attention paid to, is the, the Presbyterian, uh, i.e. You know, Calvinist background to Smith's thought. Now, I, 
I think trying to understand Adam Smith's work in 18th century Scotland without the influence of the Presbyterian Kirk would be like trying to understand some uh, the situation in Afghanistan at the moment without any attention to, to Islam. You know, it's just the presumption has to be uh, that regardless of Smith's own personal religious commit commitments, I don't have a, a stake in that one. Um, some people have tried to argue that Smith was an orthodox Christian and all this sort of thing. You know, I'm just completely agnostic about that. I'd, I'd leave that one to God. But whatever um, Smith's personal religious convictions or otherwise were, you know, I think the, the evidence is pretty strong biographically, textually, now, even if looking at the early reception of Smith's work, that you know, the theological background, and primarily um, scientific natural theology and Calvinism, that were very important in shaping his thinking. Um, so, one of the things that's distracted scholars in the past has been the lack of um, commentary on doctrinal matters in the wealth of nations. We don't have long um, discussions of the uh, of, of uh, salvation, of the end times. There is a small passage about the atonement, which was controversially removed um, from the Smith Corpus. But on the whole, we don't have much discussion of doctrine. The, but we've got to remember that Smith is a natural theologian, so he's trying to infer um, things about God's nature and activity from observation, including observation of human society. And so... The things, the most important doctrinal building blocks for Smith's thought are his um, theologically shaped view of human nature. So uh, for, for Smith, uh, human beings are a mixture of you know, self-love, benevolence, and various other virtues and vices. But importantly, you know, from the Calvinist side, Smith's got a very strong um, doctrine of the fall. So for those of you who don't read lots of theology, now the fall is the idea that you know, human beings and the rest of creation um, created uh, good and perfect and then there was some sort of a, um, a rebellion of human beings against that original creative intention by God, the fall, and then there was you know, creation, um, including uh, human beings, now it became then flawed. And for, for Calvinists, it's not just our moral capacities are, are fallen, but also our intellectual and, in fact, all our capacities are fallen. And so that the, the um, human nature, and particularly the fallen aspect of human nature, is pretty important for Smith. Uh, for instance, um, one of his one of the reasons he likes markets is that markets decentralise power and reduce the damage that the, that the fallen nature of human beings uh, can do to society. But now's not the place for an extended discussion of that. The other doctrine that's really important, and this is really important for a lot of natural theologians, uh, is the doctrine of providence. Uh, the doctrine of providence is the doctrine that discusses God's care for the created order in between that time of creation and, and the end times. And providence is, is, is about preservation. Pro the doctrine of providence doesn't say that everything's always going to turn out for good, just that and things are going to be, society, including human society, is going to be preserved by God until you know, the final the final reckoning. So that's, that divine, the doctrine of divine providence is extremely important for Smith. I've argued in the book, for instance, that 
Smith's ideas about um, self-organisation, about harmony in markets, are just a you know, transfer of 18th century Calvinist ideas um, from history to markets. Probably overstates it a bit, but the doctrine of providence is really important for understanding Smith on markets. So that's a little sketch of, of some of the, of the theological background to Smith's work. And I wanted to do that so that we've got something on the table that we can then take to the, um, the text in Book 5 of The Wealth of Nations. Um, I should say, too, that Smith's got a... Um, in relation to the, the economics of religion, Larry, who I see uh, sitting up the back, um, he's a, 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 dear, a dear friend. Um, but, <laughs> so, I guess, I guess you, you know that I'm going to say something... <laughs> <laughs> Something critical about about your work, given that I'm. Sure, <laughs> but um, Larry's um, been uh, the person more than anyone else who's built the uh, the modern, um, Larry, both organisationally and through his own research, you know, the modern um, uh, discipline, subdiscipline of the economics of religion. And Larry um, began his um, 1998 Journal of Economic Literature survey you know, with this this wonderful sentence about how it's been a long time between the first publication on the economics of religion, i.e. the wealth of nations, and the, the next one, as some of the work, a lot of which was Larry's, uh, in the, the 1970s on, on religious markets. And I think we have to be careful here, because Smith certainly is talking about religious markets. Contemporary economics of religion literature is talking about religious markets. But there's very different theories of human nature human motivation going on in Smith and you know, a lot of that um, work was built on a, a very Chicago uh, view of human nature, human action. So Smith is not a utilitarian. Uh, Smith doesn't have anything like a rational choice view of, 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 of human action. Um, it's, it's quite different. He's shaped by the, the natural law tradition. Totally different um, um, Things are never justified in Smith according to utility considerations, for instance. They're never justified actually according to... to the, he never uses doctrine to justify some sort of proposition about economics. So he often comments on the utility of various social institutions and practices, but he never uses utility. Utility is never the, the motivating force in Smith. It's more complicated than that. So anyway, that's my um, sketch of the theological background which is shaping the text. The other context which I think is important, because what we've got in Smith is it's largely a discussion of, of a church establishment. Now, church establishment, for those of you who are Americans, you probably know that you avoided it, um, <laughs> but not much more about it. But England you know, has, still has an established church, I guess it's much less firmly established than it used to be. But church establishment has been a live issue for economists, not just for Smith. So um, the discussion of the economics of church establishment goes back to, to Hooker, uh, the, the great you know, Anglican um, writer. But there are many economists besides Smith who bought in to the economics of church establishment. Uh, Josiah Tucker, um, Bishop Butler... Um, that Humus, we'll see, has got involved in the discussion and then right into the 19th century, 
Uh, Richard Wakeley's got a particularly delicious discussion, uh, typically delicious discussion of, of church establishment. Thomas Chalmers. Uh, there's a whole range of 18th century and early 19th century discussions of the economics of church establishment. So Smith has to be seen uh, in, as a participant in this longer discussion of church establishment, not just appearing and suddenly having the idea that we can uh, apply economics to this, this question. So I should show you my, my picture of Smith now, since I brought it along. So there he is. Um. <laughs> so what does Smith say about um, religious markets? Again, it's important that we've talked about some of the context, the context in Smith's own thought, the, the context in the previous discussions of church establishment. But we need to understand where, where Smith's discussion fits into the argument of the wealth of nations. So now the wealth of nations, as we all know, uh, begins with a couple of um, books about what we call economic theory. Uh, book three talks about the progress of opulence. Book four about different systems of political economy. And book five deals with, I guess, what modern economists would recognise as something something like public finance, maybe with a bit of public choice in there as well. And so he discusses institutions of defence, discusses taxation, and in there is a discussion of education. The discussion of education is interesting because he's discussing education partly because he thinks that markets have deleterious effects on, on human beings. So the vision of labour brings, you know, means people are repeating tasks all the time. There's not the, um, yeah, that it's, it's, work becomes drudgery yeah, in a world where the vision of labour is, is very advanced. And it's important here because Smith sees education as being the primary way that that um, alienation um, caused by the division of labour is remedied. I'm a bit of a Viner fan, and Ross and I spent a reasonable amount of time talking about Viner. Viner was never a fan of the history of political, uh, the journal History of Political Economy being formed, but was eventually persuaded by Crawford Goodwin to write a piece on, they agreed on, the theory of alienation in Adam Smith. So that was to be Viner's uh, last piece, and there's a few bits and pieces of it in the Viner um, archives at Princeton. But it was a, a, this question of alienation, Smith, is, is interesting, and it's where the discussion of education begins. So there's some, some great stuff about higher education, but most of us are involved in higher education. Smith's got some, some really good stuff on that. Um, not very complimentary often, shaped by his own poor experiences at University of Oxford, partly. But the bit we're interested in is about religious education. And in 18th century Scotland, uh, the church was the main educational institution. So he's talking about religious education and you know, moving on to, to the, the structure of the churches that provide this education. So when Smith starts talking about religious education and the institutions that support it, he, go, he moves first to financing. So to understand how the institutions of religious education work, we have to understand how they're financed. 
So it's a bit of an 18th century version of follow the money uh, in, in Smith. It's looking at the financing and the incentives for participants in religious education. And he says that uh, the, the zeal and the diligence of those who are involved in education depends greatly now on the way they're remunerated. So if they're too poorly remunerated, um, meanly remunerated in his terms, then you're not going to get very high quality religious education. But equally, in fact even more so if they're over-remunerated, if, there's a, if, you're, if you're guaranteed a, a salary through a tithe, a stipend or something like that, then nor is there going to be very high quality education. A salutary warning for those of us who have um, tenured positions in, in universities, I think. So, having established that it's all about incentives uh, for the participants, we then have to take a break because Smith starts talking about this person, the most illustrious philosopher and historian of the present age, his friend David Hume. Now, Smith never names Hume in the passage in The Wealth of Nations, but it's pretty easy to identify um, one of the one volume of Hume's History of England um, that appeared in, in 1759. By the way, I should say that the full text of this will be up with all the references uh, will be uploaded onto the ACE website. Um, so you can have a look at it there and presumably that's available to, to HES people as, as well if you want to follow up any of these passages. I can probably, I'll probably upload a PDF I've got as well of, of just the the market section of the Wealth of Nations and also these passages from Hume's History of England that, that Smith is referring to. I should remember to do that, Steve, for those who want to follow it up. But I absolutely love um, Hume's discussion of church establishment in the History of England. Hume begins by asking the reader to reflect for a moment on why there should be an established church in every civilised community. And he observes, and in a way that would um, warm the hearts of public choice theorists, that there's often a divergence between the interests of individuals and the interests of society. So you can just imagine Hume's reader at this point um, preparing themselves for an argument, an argument that, you know, is it, was much repeated in 18th century Britain. Uh, William Warburton had just written a huge tome on church establishment, uh, defending it in economic terms, um, using that same sort of um, argument about divergences between individual incentives and the interests of society. But just at the point when the reader is about to, to yawn and you know, pass over another argument about how religion should be subsidised because it's good for society because the individuals don't have enough incentive themselves to provide high-quality religious education, therefore it should be subsidised, therefore the church should be established, and that's all very fine and dandy. Well, Smith, oh, sorry, Hume um, does something that's delicious here. He says, yes, there is a divergence between private interest and the interests of society. Um, and what happened? We actually, it's actually the other way around, so we get an excess provision of religious education 
for, for Hume, there's an excess of, of zeal. Um, an oversupply, in his words, of certain types of clerical exertion which promote superstition, folly and delusion. So the problem here is actually that we've got an excess of these socially undesirable things, in Hume's view, um, provided by the, the existing institutions of religious education. So Hume's solution is that we need church establishment. So church establishment, remember jumping back to his friend Smith's discussion of how exertion depends very greatly on the reward of the participants. So we actually need church establishment in Hume's view to reduce the supply of zeal and superstition and folly. We actually need um, church establishment in Hume's words to bribe the indolence of the clergy. So a delicious passage in Hume's uh, History of England. And you can kind of understand why Smith doesn't want to name his friend when he's um, <laughs> picking off from there in his own discussion of religious establishment. And I think he's a bit less courageous than Hume in his own discussion. But let's see how Smith develops the argument. So he says, agrees with his friend Hume, Um, to some extent. But he argues that church establishment doesn't just bring indolence. Um, you're not just buying the indolence of the clergy. You're also buying a whole lot of corruption and violence when you have church establishment. He takes uh, unnamed Hume to task for neglecting that aspect of church establishment. And Smith argues with some historical examples that that comes about both through the original establishment of religion and when also when establishment is challenged. So the idea is, you now Smith believes that churches, uh, with Hume, the church establishment buys the indolence of the clergy. And so if you have an established church, over time it will become fat and lazy and unpopular. And so the established church then needs to draw on the, um, the state's monopoly on violence to, uh, to reinforce its established position, even though it's become unpopular with the people. So both the original establishment of religion and the maintenance of that establishment for Smith bring corruption and violence, not just indolence. And that changes the story. Smith offers an alternative way, though, to establishment to buy religious peace. Now remember that we're living in an age where the memory of religious wars is, is still pretty fresh. Both Smith and Hume are keen for there to be you know, a religious peace. And Smith's alternative, I think this is something that's really novel, and I think, uh, Larry, having criticised you before, it's something that your work really picks up, you know, the importance of a religious competition for Smith. So for Smith, if you've got a large number of sets, then competition between those sets for Smith generates moderation. In his words, uh, it will promote good temper and moderation and deliver the ideal religion for Smith, 
which is pure and rational religion, free from any mixture of absurdity, imposture, or fanaticism. So Smith and Hume had a pretty similar idea of what religion should be. But for Smith, it's competition that guarantees that moderation, not establishment. Smith then goes on um, to reinforce that argument with the Catholic about um, discussion of the Catholic Church. If there's one thing that was popular in Presbyterian Scotland in the 18th century, <laughs> bashing the Catholics. So, you know, particularly it's interesting when Smith has a controversial point to make about religion. Often afterwards, he's sticking the boot into the into the Catholics because that you know. That, get, that keeps his um, very Presbyterian leadership on, on side. So you then have a, a long passage about how uh, the Catholic Church, and let me read you the, the quote. You can read most of them in the, in the paper. The Church of Rome is the most formidable combination that ever was formed against the authority and security of civil government, as well as against liberty, reason, and happiness of mankind. So it really does get stuck in. Um, but it, it is reinforcing his point that establishment, and remember that most of the churches in Europe um, were, most of the countries of Europe had established Catholic, or a lot of them had established Catholic churches. And uh, they're a, an example, a, a vivid example of the, of the evils of, of church establishment and uh, recommending his own solution of religious competition uh, as a as a way of obtaining a religious peace. Now, I won't talk about Smith's discussion of the patronage system, which is kind of interesting, and he's quite conservative on that. The patronage system is a system where if you're part of this revolts Americans, where if you're part of a church, you don't get to pick your minister. The state gets to appoint the, the minister. And Smith was actually you know, supportive of, of that system for reasons that have to do with um, and the, the fall with fallen human nature and the gullibility of the ill-educated. Anyway, you can read about his comments on the patronage system. He's also his argument about clergy pay, um, which is which is really interesting. But I want to move on to the the bigger questions that are raised by Smith's discussion of religious markets. So what we've got here is a discussion of religious markets that, that flows from his theologically framed account of human nature, and there's novelty in his application of his ideas about human nature and markets to, um, to religious markets and the role of competition in religious markets. It's not a full economic model of... It's not a full model of religious markets by any means, but it's got the ingredients of a fuller model of religious markets. I'd love to see a more Smithian um, economics of religion um, worked out. Now, maybe it's a competitor of the more Chicago and Virginia um, versions of the, the economics of religious markets that we have at the moment. But I think what's most interesting about um, the discussion, in, in the light of Smith's theological background, what's most interesting is the absence of any sense that there's some sort of providential um, coordination going on in religious markets. 
you kind of think if Smith's going to run the, you know, what many historians call the invisible hand argument, if Smith's going to run the invisible hand argument, which I think is a providential argument, anywhere in the wealth of nations, he's going to run it in relation to, to religious markets. There's no trace of it whatsoever. The place you get it is actually later on um, in his discussion of international trade and, and capital movements. That's where the invisible hand passage is. But you don't even get any, without even using the word, you don't get any sense of the providential hand of God operating to deliver something like you know, Gary Anderson's optimal religious markets or anything like that. So why is that? You know, it's, it's curious. Part of it, I think, is thinking about the, the role that it plays within the structure of the argument of the wealth of nations. So remember here that this is a kind of a second-order issue. He's got the main discussion of the way markets operate in the first couple of books of the Wealth of Nations, and this is something that is operating. Now, Smith's very instrumental about religion. He's interested in the role religion plays in society and its benefits or otherwise. Religion here is operating instrumentally. So religion is operating to ameliorate the effects of the division of labour. So it's kind of a second-order issue. So my guess is that when Smith is thinking about providence and harmony in markets, he's thinking about you know, most of the markets that are going on. He's not thinking so much about these um, markets for um, religion, for, you know, for higher education, etc. That's I think that could be part of it. Um, but also, thinking about Smith's argument, some of the elements that are necessary for you know, coordination in markets in Smith aren't really characteristics of, of these markets. We haven't got prices. Um, we haven't got some of the other institutional structures that Smith believes are necessary to support those harmonious outcomes in markets. Or at least if they do, the institutional structures that exist currently in religious markets are flawed. And the flaws in those institutional structures are what stops the delivery of you know, good outcomes from those markets. But I think it's, you know, it's still a bit of a puzzle why we get so little of that you know, providential harmony of markets um, stuff through these passages about education and about religious markets in the wealth of nations. So if anyone's got any great ideas, uh, we'd love to have them in discussion. So I'll finish there and um, very, very happy to have people's comments and questions. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithfuleconomy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime, and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. 
You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.